You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 19th of March 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. This is really a heaven-sent opportunity for a rapprochement between the US and Iran that has been impossible, largely because of US intransigence, ever since the hostage crisis, ever since the Iranian revolution. COVID-19 might be changing everything else, but it's not changing US sanctions on Iran. My guests Mary Dijewski and Stephanie Bolzen will discuss that and the day's other news, including Boris Johnson still saying that Brexit will go ahead regardless of whatever else, and Shop Local, why now is the time to support your high street. Plus... For a Prime Minister who, until last year, used to be overshadowed in press conferences by his vocal vice-PMs, and who was largely considered a vanilla figure, if not a figurehead, Italy's Giuseppe Conte has seen a radical public perception shift in the last few weeks. Italy's Prime Minister enjoys a surge in popularity. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Well, welcome to the show. I'm joined by the journalist Mary Dijewski and Stephanie Bolson, London correspondent for Die Welt. We will start, as we may be doing for some while, with the obvious. Among the many areas of endeavour which will be affected by the COVID-19 outbreak is that of geopolitics, though exactly how, of course, remains to be seen. One looming potential crunch point is one of the worst affected countries, Iran, where tackling the pandemic has not been made any easier by sanctions imposed on the country by the US and other nations in an effort to to curb the Tehran regime's behaviour on a number of fronts. Um, Mary, have we reached the point at which it's time the world said we need to look past such relatively petty disputes and just drop sanctions completely? Well, it probably depends on your judgment of what Iran is about and what the situation in Iran actually is. I mean, my view would be absolutely that this is really a heaven-sent opportunity um, for a rapprochement between the U.S. and Iran that has been impossible, largely because of U.S. intransigence, ever since the hostage crisis, ever since the Iranian revolution. Um, But it seems that Um, the Trump administration is responding in completely the opposite way um, to reinforce sanctions um, which are putting Iran in a dire state of um, medical deprivation and probably augmenting the crisis there, which could in turn um, lead to instability in Iran, which would not be to um, America's advantage or anybody else's. Uh, Stephanie, is there an argument for that same question put the other way? Not so much should we just forget how Iran is behaving and help it out, or should the argument now be put to Tehran's regime what's actually more important to you? If you stop doing what we want you to stop doing, then you'll get all the aid you like. Well, it's first of all, it's it's going to be very difficult to control if Iran is really uh, complying with what uh, whether it, whether it's CE3 countries or the US wants to stop any uh, any work on a, on a nuclear uh, bomb. To be very simplistic, but um, I think as Mary just said, um, there is the question whether. There is uh, could be a kind of um, clever sanction regime which looks at really the very dire situation of probably thousands of deaths already in Iran because of the coronavirus, 
and uh, make sure that the supply chains for medication, for whatever is needed in this massive health crisis will be maintained. And that would be then also um, strengthen the moderate forces in Iran, because I also think if this crisis gets even worse, that will only play into the hands of the, the hardliners in Iran. Uh, Mary, would these arguments, or indeed are these arguments, any different if applied to the roguest of the world's rogue regimes, i.e. North Korea? We have, as usual, almost no idea what's actually happening with this in North Korea, but it would be a considerable surprise uh, to discover that they've escaped it entirely. Should it become clear that North Korea needs massive help, should that just be provided no questions asked? Well, I think one of the really interesting things is that, you know, if we were talking about this, say, two years ago, North Korea would be treated as um, a threat to world peace, um, as a you know, rogue state, epitome of um, all those things. And the idea of um, giving any sort of medical or emergency help to North Korea really wouldn't, it would probably hardly have come above the parapet. Um, today, I think that the, the, the position of North Korea has completely changed. I mean, even though people talk about, you know, the, 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 there have been entirely confirmed reports that Iran has been um, testing um, its nuclear capability in the not too distant past, nonetheless, since the rapprochement with, um, with the U.S. initiated by Donald Trump, um, North Korea has never seemed like that sort of threat on that sort of scale again. So on the one hand, I think it's entirely plausible um, that um, countries generally, um, including the United States, might indeed offer um, assistance to North Korea. At the same time, it's not as closed as it used to be, and it's not without... Um, even um, behind-the-scenes communications, which before were completely lacking. Um, Stephanie, is it possible that we're going to see, and I think we're seeing some of this already, a bit of an uptick in what you might call countries combining compassion with cynicism, as in using aid as a means of delivering uh, real politic outreach, thinking particularly of China, which has made something of a show of delivering supplies to Italy and Serbia, among others? Yeah, that's definitely something that um, is for the Europeans and especially for the European Commission that is trying to coordinate uh, the solidarity among the 27 member states. But it is seeing that um, most member states are now <laughs> almost exclusively looking at their own needs. And therefore, countries such as Serbia or uh, indeed Italy, have now received help from China. And of course, people will always remember that, people in the catastrophic situation of needing the most, um, the most um, well, fundamental uh, equipment, that this will not come from their neighbours in Germany or their neighbours in, um, in Austria or wherever. But this is coming from China. And of course, this is uh, this will have a, a long term effect. And it's not nothing in a way. It's nothing new because China has been very, uh, very good at um, spreading influence in all over the European Union, obviously, and on other continents, even much more, especially in Africa. But there is, um, it, it is a, a tricky challenge for the Europeans to not, on the one hand, well, if you don't give help to your neighbor countries, you, you can't be surprised that they're taking it from others. So I think there is now a bit more 
yeah, push for coordination on the highest levels in Europe to to show European solidarity again. Stephanie Bolson and Mary Dijewski, thank you for the moment. We'll have more from you later in the show. But first, here is Monocle's Marcus Hippie with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. The German army has been placed on standby to deal with the ongoing coronavirus crisis. With around 11,000 confirmed cases in the country, authorities are concerned that a substantial increase could lead to a breakdown in health infrastructure. While deployment of the military in Germany remains touchy for some, the country's Defence Minister reassured the public that any decision to involve the army would be coordinated with the country's 16 different states. The Bank of England has cut interest rates to 0.1%, a little over a week after its last emergency rate cut. Elsewhere, the European Central Bank launched an emergency €750 billion Euro package, whilst US Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin suggested that Americans could look forward to receiving checks from the government, part of a stimulus package. It hopes will soften the worst effects of coronavirus on the economy. And Elon Musk has suggested that his electric car company Tesla will start making ventilators if required. In the UK, a number of distilleries have switched to making alcoholic hand sanitizer, whilst manufacturers around the world have pledged to refocus their efforts to assist in the fight against the virus. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Stephanie Bolson and Mary Dijewski. Well, let's look at another issue which seemed all-consuming not that long ago, but which has been bumped several hundred rungs down the ladder of importance. Brexit, which you may recall being all the rage circa 2016 to 2019. The UK left the EU at the end of January, seven weeks and several political eras ago, and is due to exit the present transition period at the end of December. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has thus far swatted a Side questions about extending that transition period, a decision which must be made by June. Uh, Stephanie, seriously, is this really even a question at this point? That transition is going to be extended, isn't it? Well, I, I can't answer that question. The only person who can answer that is Boris Johnson. And uh, last last night at the press conference, he was asked about that again, and he uh, he uh, <laughs> he again, yeah, very. Uh, he avoided answering it. But as we heard this morning, Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator uh, for the Brexit talks, he is positive, has been tested positive uh, for coronavirus. So you might also think just on the mere grounds of who is going to do the work. Um, they have been negotiating with 100 people on both sides. They have been physically meeting uh, just, uh, I think, a bit less than two weeks ago in, in Brussels. They were going to be actually today in London from from yesterday that was cancelled of course um so a lot of people might just feel fall ill um and then i think we have no idea we are really thinking from day to day we are kind of processing from day to day the dimension of the coronavirus crisis um i cannot imagine that by june when we are maybe behind the worst of it People will say, well, now we take a second hit and go for a no deal because there can't be a negotiation finished by the end of the year. So let's go for a no deal. I I don't know. It's I can't imagine. But, well, ask Boris Johnson. 
Um, Mary, I may be becoming mildly crazed with counterintuitive optimism on this, but it does strike me at least that the politics of this, by which I mean extending the transition, would not be terribly difficult to manage. If Boris Johnson were to announce later today, look, all things considered, I think we've got more pressing concerns. Brexit's going to have to be punted by a year at least. Would anybody bar a few absolutely um, irreconcilable headbangers care? Well, I'm not entirely sure about that. I mean, in principle, I agree with you. I think that um, in many ways, um, this emergency um, has provided cover for an awful lot of um, policy changes um, and delaying the um, finality of Brexit could be one of them. Um, But I have to say that um, I was... Um, in capacity of reporter, of course, rather than any other capacity, um, at the annual conference of the Bruges Group, which are the um, extreme Brexiteers, um, a couple of weeks ago in London. And the the interesting thing about that was that, on the one hand, they seemed quite relaxed and confident um, that Brexit was going to happen and therefore they'd won. And I came away with the impression that they weren't really going to quibble very much about the small print of any agreement. They were now confident that it was all over. Um, Now, I think that if there were any suggestion, any question mark, uh, not necessarily over the timetable, um, but over the actual fact of Brexit, I think you might find a resurgence of the Brexiteers quite quickly. And the last thing Boris Johnson needs, even with his huge majority in the House of Commons, the last thing he needs is the possibility of an internal revolt that could um, that could increase quite quickly if it was suddenly felt that Brexit was in danger. Stephanie, what have you made um, of Boris Johnson's handling and communications of this so far? He, he, I mean, any national leader right now is in an extraordinary position, but Boris Johnson, it strikes me as slightly more so, having made his name and made his reputation as a fundamentally unserious person, uh, he finds himself doing an extremely serious job at an extremely serious time. Well, he he definitely is handling the worst crisis since Winston Churchill, uh, which was the Second World War and the attack of the German, the 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 air raids of Germany on on London um, or Hitler Hitler Hitler's Germany. I mean, he of course he he manages that well uh, every day. The press conferences they're trying to be very transparent, but I think. Um, I mean, if you if you look at Italy, if you look at Spain, Belgium, my country, Germany, the measures taken are far more draconic. They are far more drastic. Um, there is much more interference in everyday life. People are not allowed to leave their homes in millions of people. And here in the UK, life is still going on. The schools are still not closed. Um, and of course, in, in hindsight, there will be uh, the very, very massive question for the government if they were to slow and if they got the wrong strategy, because they said, um, we must um, try to to mitigate this and then they did a turnaround last Monday and said no now people over 70 have to stay at home people with uh, preconditions that are not healthy um, but it, it, uh, my my fear is that this was far too late uh, far too little done and too late.
Okay, well, finally on today's news panel, as more and more people become resigned to the prospect of a long stretch at home, greater and greater strain has been placed on food retailers and the people who work in them, who we should be making extra efforts to be polite to. It has been noted, however, in London and elsewhere, that while the shelves of the big high street supermarkets are being picked clean, local shops seem amply stocked. Is this perhaps a time to think local, like we're going to have a choice? Um, Mary, what has been your experience of that so far? That that has just been mine. Where I live in Leytonstone in East London, um, there's barely anything in the big Tesco, but the smaller the shop you go to, the better stocked it seems to be. Well, I live right in the centre of London, um, so there's actually only around me some very small chain supermarkets and a few corner shops. And I have to say that for the last week, I've avoided going into either of them, um, really in the hope that leave it a week, maybe people get over panic buying and maybe things will return to the shops. Um, But I'm also slightly, um, well, I can't say on the one hand horrified, um, on the other hand not surprised. Um, the British have taken a very sort of high-minded um, attitude to themselves and about how they respond in crises. And they've rather given the impression, going back to the blitz spirit and all that, um, that everybody in a crisis, everybody British behaves in an absolutely um, perfect and commendable way. And suddenly we see that this is actually not so. Um, the British are as prone to panic buying, perhaps even more so um, than a lot of other people. My sister lives in the south of Italy. She says there's been um, no panic buying worth speaking of um, down there. And yet you look at all the pictures of completely empty shelves. Um, You look at what people are taking away from big supermarkets and you think, no, the British are not that immune to alarm and panic. Uh, Stephanie, is there? It strikes me that there's a dual imperative now for us to make an effort with with local shops, local whatever else is going to be permitted to remain open. One is because it might actually be better for us in that there might actually, it turns out, be more available in the shop up the street rather than the big supermarket several blocks away. Uh, but the other thing is those are the businesses that are going to struggle the hardest to come out the other side of this. Now does seem like a good time to support whatever is on our high street that we would still like to have on our high street this time next year, doesn't it? Well, it will very much depend also how strong a curfew, and I'm quite sure there will be a curfew at some point, how how, how strict it will be will be done. I mean, um, the, the, the truth is that actually the local shops where I live in uh, in Ealing, they are very well stocked. Um, I have seen on Monday morning, I went to the local Sainsbury, a big supermarket, uh, and there the shelves were actually um, empty. So I'm, I do not panic at all. But of course, um, I, I admit if I go into a supermarket and the shelves are empty, I get a bit of a, <laughs> I get a bit nervous about it. But um, there is no reason to think that we will not have enough supply. Sometimes for a couple of days, you will not get your favorite pasta. But hey, uh, there are worse things. Um, I, I think that. Um, if, if we can, we should support also local delivery restaurants, uh, takeaways. Um, but my fear is that at some point people will simply not have the money anymore to pay uh, takeaway deliveries. Um, and um, sorry, I'm, I'm just 
extraordinarily pessimistic. I I see that a lot of people will be very hit hit very badly. Mary Dijewski and Stephanie Bolson, thank you both for joining us. In a moment, we'll be hearing about how Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte is gaining popularity. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's Chiara Ramella explains how Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte is gaining popularity amidst this crisis. minister who, until last year, used to be overshadowed in press conferences by his vocal vice-PMs and who was largely considered a vanilla figure, if not a figurehead, Italy's Giuseppe Conte has seen a radical public perception shift in the last few weeks. The former lawyer, who is not affiliated with a specific party but is currently leading a government formed by the centre-left Democratic Party and populist Five Star Movement, has now become the Italian's reference point in dealing with the coronavirus crisis. Despite inevitable criticism by some for the speed and efficiency with which the country dealt with the situation, his personal approval ratings have risen by a few percentage points, up to 45%. As Europe's epicentre of the outbreak, Italy introduced lockdown measures before any other state around the continent. Conte delivered the news in televised addresses in a calm, decisive, concise manner. But he also always maintained an emotive, empathetic touch that resonated with the population. Let's stay further away today to hug each other with more warmth tomorrow, he said to conclude one of his speeches. After months of uncertainty, wobbly governments and political infighting, Italians are in dire need of a solid figure to lead them. However tough following the strict quarantine rules may be, most appreciate the decisions taken and, according to a recent survey by ICSE for Catabianca, published on La Repubblica, they would even support stricter measures. Once the worst is over, Conte's stringent approach is likely to keep bearing political fruit. That was Chiara Ramella, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machelari and researched by Charlie German. Our studio managers were Jack Dewars and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, that is 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>